BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. When a hurricane is fast approaching, experts always say that you have to fear the water, whether it's rain coming down from the sky or the surge from the ocean or the flood from the rivers. What if I told you that my guest today has created a concept that would make you flock to the water and live a safer life from hurricanes? Mark Collins Chin is the CEO of Oceanics, a company that builds floating structures that can hold up to thousands of residents. Wow. Could Oceanics plan to be the future of hurricane and climate change prediction actually work? Let's talk with Mark Collins Chin. Thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Podcast. Well, thank you so much, uh, Marshall, for having me on, on your program. Yeah, it's, it's really often Weather Geeks. We, we, we try to talk to a variety of different people here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a little bit different than what some of our listeners may be familiar with. So I look forward to the conversation here. Uh, let me get a little, give a little background on you. Uh, you're the co-founder and CEO of Oceanics, a company that builds floating cities for people to live sustainably on the oceans. You've been at this since November 2018, at least in terms of that company. Uh, You have founded and incubated more than a dozen companies focusing on innovation and technology. Uh, Previously, you were the Minister of Tourism for French Polynesia back in 2007, and you have engineering and business management uh, degrees or have studied those, at least, at University of Texas at Austin. Quite the different guest than what we've had on Weather Geeks, but I love it because it's certainly related to uh, to what we talk about here. Uh, what inspired you to create a company like this? Let's just start there. So, um, thank you for that uh, that introduction. Uh, I, every time I hear, you know, when you go back through your history, you go, "Wow, all those things happened <laughs> in all these years." Uh, but going back uh, to the first exposure I had uh, to to this idea that, that floating cities could be a viable alternative um, to adapt to sea level rise. Came on my radar around 2007 when I was invited to participate um, in a couple of different uh, governments as Minister of Tourism. And one of the issues that we were already seeing on the front lines, so this was not about the IPCC studies that came years, years later, right? Um, but there, was already first, there were already first-hand accounts of some changes in terms of, of sea level rise, whether it was saltwater incursion into our freshwater uh, lenses. So on these small, low-lying atolls, think about barrier islands. Uh, I think that's the closest analogy to, to the U.S. coast. Um, you basically are depending on water that's just barely uh, on the surface. So as soon as you have wave surges, you get salt water. So we were starting to see that in, in 2007, and we looked at alternatives. So as the government needed to plan for, for the next several uh, decades, the question of what to do with populations that live on these barrier islands. So French Polynesia, most people know by the name of Tahiti, but Tahiti is just one of the islands. Um, there are 118 islands total in French Polynesia spread out over the, the size of, of Western Europe. And around 62 of these are barrier type islands that are inhabited. And what do you do for, for these people? So. You talk about managed retreat, but 
as you know, even here in the U.S., managed retreat is not something people want to hear about or, you know, voters or developers want to hear, city councils. It's, it's a touchy issue. And same thing for us politically in Tahiti. So the other one was, okay, are there heavy-duty public infrastructure type, what I call gray uh, infrastructure, uh, seawalls, levees, dams, uh, you know, all of these larger pieces of infrastructure? And yes, they exist. They're incredibly costly. And to be quite honest, they won't last that long. You won't be able to have a 100-year plan to keep people on these islands by just building these walls. So I remember one of the most shocking things I learned from one of our neighbors, so Kiribati. Kiribati is all low-lying islands. There's an island there, small little, tiny little barrier island, where the population built a 15, yeah, I mean, about 15-foot wall around them. So they're living in paradise, but they can't see the ocean. They're on the inside of a gray wall. So that solution didn't work. And the third one that was starting, you know, you, you started to hear people talking about was this idea that we could stay in place by floating, basically building floating infrastructure so you could stay there. And the reason this was a big deal in the Pacific, and it still is, is that sea level rise for a lot of these countries is really an existential threat. If you have to leave your country entirely, which is the case for at least five island nations, you lose everything, right? You lose your culture, you literally lose your sovereignty. So there's a question of what passport will you have when everybody flees from your country? So this is not just about um, resiliency or, or just adaptation to sea level rise. It's literally what happens in the next 50 years. So that was my first exposure to, to this. And, and that's fascinating because I know I've often written, I, I, I'm a contributor to Forbes magazine, and I, I wrote an article one time about climate refugees, which is essentially mm. what you just referred to. Uh, and I, after Hurricane Maria, uh, I wrote an article saying, have we started to see climate refugees in the Caribbean uh, area as people were fleeing or leaving their homes uh, because of damage to, to some of the islands there. But this is a little bit different sort of manifestation when you talk about this idea that because of sea level rise, and we know that all of the data, there, this is not debatable, sea level is rising and climate change is contributing to that. Uh, also warming oceans are expanding the water and there's some other things as well. So that's not where things are debatable. So that's kind of a key driver here, what you're up to. But it's interesting though, it's not just sort of sea level rise that's sort of motivating your floating cities concept. There, there are a lot of sort of reasons why you might want to do this. But the question that is immediately coming to mind here, and I, I know you have an engineering background, how on a scale of one to 10, 10 being really hard and one being that's eh, easy, we know how to do that. How possible is this from an engineering standpoint? How difficult is it? So actually, the engineering piece um, has been solved for, for decades and decades. So um, one of the first groups I, I visited to try to challenge myself and my team on this uh, was the MIT Center for Ocean Engineering. So they've been around since the 1890s. I mean, they were working on steamer engines, right, at the turn of the 19th century, um, 20th century. So they, um, I had to present to, to their faculty the, the preliminary ideas we had our team had put together. And the response was, we know how to build floating structures on the ocean that will resist tsunamis, will resist extreme weather. However, so there's some caveats. And um, here are some constraints you may want to think about. And it, I think I could boil it down to literally sea states. Um, so there's a, a, just like you have uh, hurricane um, indexes and you've got... Uh, 
you know, tornado index and all, you also have that for C states. So we're, we're looking at deploying in C state one and two, which are very mild. Think about the conditions you'd have on a lake, but we're not talking freshwater, we're talking on the ocean. So what that does is it limits, obviously, your, uh, the areas where you could deploy these, but there happen to be a lot of areas that have this very close to coastal megacities. So when I talk about flowing seas, people think, oh, on the, like an oil rig in the middle of the North Sea. No, you get 35 meter waves out there and we're not going there. We're going close to shore. We need enough depth of water to be tsunami proof. So a lot of these issues when, when you hear about storm surges and, and what happens is literally that interface uh, between the ocean and land, right? It's where you can't get, it's, you're there. But as soon as you're a little further out into the water, you're actually a lot safer. You've got all that buffer from, from the water. Think about uh, whenever you have these uh, tsunami warnings and we get these in the Pacific, the first thing people do is move your boats out of the harbor. You know, get the boats out so you, you don't, they don't get slammed all over the place. So from the engineering, so I would say that we're to 10 uh, to answer your question as far as, as uh, red, um, technology readiness uh, in terms of floating and all of the sustainability systems. And I, you know, you know, when you were talking about tsunamis, I was smiling a little bit because as a meteorologist, you'd be surprised at how many people ask meteorologists about tsunamis when they're actually oceanographic phenomena, uh, geological, volcano-related, I can't even speak. Um, They're not really a weather phenomena, although people tend to think of them as such. But we certainly know that they are are caused by an earthquake or a volcanic eruption underwater that creates this sort of slow-building wave system. And so it makes sense that as that wave breaks at a coastline, uh, that's where you get the significant damage. But I want to get back to type. I mean, and it's sounds like you're talking about primarily prototypes in the Pacific, at least at this moment. So I guess if you're west of the international dateline, we're talking about typhoons, perhaps not. Uh, maybe you're east of the dateline, and so we're still talking about hurricanes. Um, but I, I need to understand a little bit more in my mind how if you have a floating city concept there in the middle of the ocean, uh, how, how, what about that system sort of makes people safer from a typhoon or a hurricane? So um, we have not decided where this, this prototype would be. So we're not certain it'll be in the Pacific. It could be off the coast of Africa. It probably will not be on, um, you know, North America for now. Um, so we are in, in many discussions with our, our partners at, uh, at UN Habitat and governments to see where the, the ideal place to deploy. But the, the basic question is uh, whether it is on the ocean or whether it's on land, you can't plan for future city growth and future urban development without taking into account this new data. Um, and I'm not talking about just sea level rise. I'm talking about, you know, the, we're going to have heat waves that we haven't had before. How many days a, a year will you have conditions where literally it's unlivable? Uh, do you have enough air conditioning for everyone? And where do you place these cities? So we started from the premise of future proofing this new type of urban development, which is to say, okay, let's say we can't get out of the path of of this weather event, extreme weather event. How do we design what's survivability look like in these conditions? So you take a category five um, sort of uh, event. We have, uh, you've seen, you remember that house in, in, uh, what was it, uh, Mexico Beach? Uh, that survived, uh, that are, everything around it is just leveled. And then you go to, to the builders or, or to the owners and you say, well, what did you do? So obviously there's a cost issue. 
there is a code they built beyond code. And there's a lot of debates about, uh, you know, when are we changing our codes? Uh, but this is a wonderful opportunity for floating cities is that it's, it's literally a blank slate for urban development where you can say, okay, what does that future code look like? And do we have the technology today to build to resist a Category 5? And the, 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 the truth of the matter is, yes. And it's not just about surviving the event, but it's what happens right after, right? Whether your sewage water is mixed with your, you know, freshwater sources, whether your power is down, your telecoms are down. Think about Maria. In, it took a year, right, to get power back to some of the, the parts of, uh, of the island. So we're, we're looking at different technologies. Now, there is a cost uh, increase to build to that. But on the ocean, you don't have the cost of the land, which you, you have on land. And, you know, beachfront is cr- incredibly expensive. So I think more than anything, it's best practices. So think about all these organizations that are trying to change the building code here in the U.S. Take those best practices and apply them to these new future cities. And a question that comes to mind, and by the way, my wife actually has a master's degree in urban and regional planning, so I'm sure she would find some of this discussion fascinating as well. Um, I keep coming back to a question, what, 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 your, your company, uh, your uh, Oceanics, so companies make money. What's your business model? Who's your customer? Perfect. Wonderful question, and I certainly appreciate that. Uh, so. Our customers today are, are cities. So whether it's municipal uh, level or whether it's central government level, it depends on the countries, right? The reason today there is a market and, and floating cities today make more sense than they did maybe 40, 50 years ago when, when they were very actively discussed is the fact that coastal megacities need to plan uh, for adaptation to sea level rise. They can't, um, you know, the... Uh, cats out of bag. Everybody knows that you need to have that plan. So if you think from an urban planning perspective and investment perspective, you can't build something if you don't have at least a 50 to 100 year uh, life expectation from that public investment. And a lot of cities are running into this issue. Uh, in the Netherlands, they've got a real big problem where they go, okay, so if we're building this bridge or this, can we guarantee? And in the face of the data, it's really tricky. So I think today, think about all these chief resiliency officers that didn't exist um, maybe even a decade ago. They're all looking at these plans and they're going, okay, we can do soft defenses, a mix of this and that. We can do hard defenses. And all of these have a cost. I think about New York. U.S. Army Corps of Engineers came up with a plan a few months ago, and it was $119 billion U.S. dollars for some sort of a very over, you know, highly engineered wall but the minute you start cutting fresh water from getting to salt water, you've got a whole different set of issues. So to your, to your question, our, our clients are cities, cities that are saying, okay, how do we keep our social fabric uh, together? How do we keep people from just saying, hey, I'm going to leave the city? And this is happening even in the U.S. There are people leaving and saying, I'm going to just sell that property and move elsewhere. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Mark Collins Chin, who is the CEO of Oceanics, a company that's building floating structures that can hold thousands of people. And it's been a fascinating discussion so far. I have to admit, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sort of aware, well aware of what's going on in the world of sort of climate sustainability and resiliency. Even in some of my own research at the University of Georgia, we've talked about climate vulnerability and exposure sensitivity and adaptive capacity. But this is very new territory for me, so it's really fascinating, and I'm, I'm certain the Weather Geeks listeners are finding this fascinating as well. Got a basic question here. How do people in these floating environments get their food, clean water, energy, and the basic necessities to live? So one of the, the core uh, premises and what, what our entire team uh, worked on, and we've got uh, an amazing team of uh, sustainability, sustainability experts, uh, and literally the world's top engineering team when it comes to floating infrastructure. So we're working with Arup out of Houston and, and also MIT uh, in Boston, but also experts on how we're going to be able to recycle water. Uh, so think about these, uh, these infrastructure, this floating infrastructure, as being uh, one, it's, it's a closed loop, entirely closed loop in terms of where we're going to be getting our water and recycling it, in terms of energy being renewable. Uh, even waste. So we got to be very careful about what comes on board so you can recycle that waste. But that the individual pieces to the system that, that make this up exist. They're just all over the world in different places. They're not applied to one single place. So we feel that uh, most of this technology is, is TRL 8 or 9. So technology readiness level is there. You can buy this off the shelf. Think about cruise ships that have closed, some cruise ships, not all. So the, the individual pieces of the technology exist to do this. The driver, as I said, is, is cities looking at adaptation and resiliency, but there's also purely economics. Um, cities are growing at a rate that is just unprecedented. We're talking 3 million people a week are moving into cities. 90% of mega cities, over 10 million people are coastal. Most people forget where all these big cities are. They're on the coast. And UN Environment came out with, with uh, some data a few years ago about how much built uh, building space we need over the next 40 years. And it's staggering. It's two and a half trillion square feet. It's New York City every 30 days for 40 years. And the impact that the energy consumption, materials uh, consumption, water that will be required for these future cities, whether they're on land, on the ocean, wherever they are, is massive and will probably have the biggest impact on, on lowering CO2 emissions. So the driver today for cities um, is population growth. So all these people moving into the cities. And then you've got sea levels rising. So you've got like these two forces that are meeting at this interface in coastal cities. And what are cities doing everywhere? They're just doing land reclamation. They're pushing dirt and sand into the ocean. And we now know that it's really a bad idea because those salt marshes, those mangroves actually, you know, mitigate uh, against storm surges. So we're, we've been doing the wrong thing for a long time. And where it gets really interesting for floating cities is that the cost of floating, I'm talking the economic cost, I'm not even talking environmental, but just the hard costs of floating are now cheaper than the cost of filling. So the cost of filling has gone up and the cost of, of building these floating structures is going down. And we've crossed that point to where very serious cities are looking at this and going, well, instead of doing an $80 billion uh, reclaimed island, which is what's happening in Hong Kong, they, they want to plan a 30-year program to, to reclaim, I think, 1,500 hectares. 
and it's 80 billion U.S. dollars. It's a lot of money. And you mentioned some things. You mentioned UN environment earlier, and I've certainly used some of their data. By the way, just for the listeners out there that may not be sort of uh, thinking about some of these things every day, this is we're an urbanized society now. More than 50% of the world's population lives in cities, and I've seen projections of that number heading northward of 65% within the next 10 to 20 years. So uh, these are real issues, and I think your point about people living close to coast. I think people do forget that the, the major cities of the world are coastal for the most part. Mm. And that's not by accident. I mean, we no, know that know. cities develop near water and, and waterways and routes for various reasons. If you study urban planning, now you have partnered with the United Nations to create something called Oceanic City. This will be the world's first resilient and sustainable floating community for 10,000 residents on 185 acres. Tell us how this partnership came about and where are you in the process? So um, UN Habitat is is the agency at the UN uh, that works on human settlements. And their mandate is to figure out how these future developments uh, are going to work. And... um, they reached out to us a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, and said, uh, look, this is a frontier issue. Uh, they're looking at some hardcore uh, things they need to do in Southeast Asia and Africa. And it just came on the radar that, okay, is this even potentially a discussion? So we said, look, the best thing to do is let's bring together the world's experts on this, whether it's from engineering, sustainability, architecture, all of the different um, disciplines that are needed and let's uh, bring this to the UN. Let's have let's sit down, have a roundtable. And we had some amazing uh, folks there. We had uh, the Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph Stiglitz talking about the importance of inclusivity, so financial inclusivity in, in future cities and whether they're floating or not. We had uh, Andrew Revkin, who was moderating and trying to uh, keep us on. You know, how, how does this work uh, from a sustainability? Uh, perspective and uh, some of the world's best uh, architects, Bjarke Ingels, and MIT, of course, was there. And after a whole day of of, of exchanges on this, the final um, takeaway was we need to look at this as, like science, and science advances through prototyping, right? And we're not talking about just doing a 3D model or a wave model. Let's actually build a piece of this city, not 10,000 people to start, maybe less, certainly less. Let's do that one prototype. Let's test how does the energy work? How how are you storing renewable energy? How does this work? What are the costs associated with maintaining a floating city? So ultimately, uh, the entire group unanimously said, look, let's just build, including Stiglitz. Stiglitz said, well, why don't we just build one? Let's see how it operates and then advance science. So that's where we're at. We're in discussions with a multitude of governments today to try to see where is the right place and where we can get the, the right support to build this. And, and the producers, uh, the Weather Geeks producers at the Weather Channel, have you've given me a, a nice mock-up. I'm, I'm looking at it and uh, you can't see it. And by the way, hopefully you can provide a website where the listeners can go and sort of poke around in some of these themselves. But it looks to me like you have a design that's essentially a collection of hexagonal platforms, uh, which theoretically would hold about 300 residents. Um, you're going to use some concepts that may be new. So I'm going to just read a couple of words and let you react to them and explain them to us, the listeners and myself. One is ocean farming and the other is bio rock. First of all, tell us about ocean farming and then what, what is bio rock and why, it's, why is that going to be important? 
So ocean farming is, is absolutely fascinating. It's this idea of um, being able to grow crops in the ocean without bringing fresh water. One of the biggest issues we have on land, of course, is you need a, a lot of fresh water to grow your crops. So you don't need fresh water to grow crops in the ocean. That's, that seems obvious, but uh, people forget that you don't have that input. Uh, the other huge input is you don't need fertilizers. So phosphates, nitrates, and all that crap we're throwing on land that ends up, by the way, in the ocean and causes algae blooms and all that. So in the ocean, uh, there's a, there are a number of, of universities and, and private companies working on something called multi-trophic uh, aquaculture, uh, integrated multi-trophic aquaculture, which means that at the different trophic levels, so the stuff that you grow on the top, they could be, think about it, kelp or, or different types of macro algae. Um, and then you're feeding fish, then their waste is feeding something that's lower in the trophic level. And then at the bottom, literally on the sand, uh, you've got different types. You've got sea cucumbers. You've got a number of organisms and worms that you can that then take the last bit of that waste and and use it as an input. So you can harvest all of these for for protein. And um, the reason we're very interested in this is we tried to model what a normal type of animal agriculture would look like on the ocean. So if you had to put out these massive uh, structures to have a lot of cattle, a lot of chicken, a lot of pork. How much water would you need? How much energy to grow protein? And at the end of the day, you realize that they're really just the middlemen. Uh, the protein is really the plant, uh, then the animal takes it, and then you eat it. So if you cut out the middlemen just from an energy perspective, and which translates into cost, it is a lot more cost effective to actually be plant-based. Now, we're not saying that floating cities, it's not an imposition on residents. It's just that I think it's going to be important to grow your food as close to the source. Uh, it obviously has a carbon footprint to bring it, you know, I think in the U.S. is what, 2,500 miles is the average to bring food to you. Now, I understand that cost is not that high when you factor everything in, but I think that food um, independent, being able to be resilient on, on food is going to be important in the future. The second question on, on BioRock is absolutely, it's a fascinating technology. So we're very lucky to have on our, our team, Dr. Tom Garo. He's the co-inventor of this. BioRock is a substance. It's, it's basically calcium carbonate. So the ocean is full of calcium carbonate. Think about seashells. How do seashells, mollusks have their shells? It's because the ocean, literally, you've got all these calcium molecules floating out there. And what BioRock does is you trickle charge cathode and an anode in the water, very, very low voltages. We're talking 1.2 volts. And over time, calcium carbon accretes on one of the anodes. Um, and what happens is it grows in pretty quickly. After, I think, 12 months, you've got about an inch, an inch and a half a piece of, of, of bio rock. And it's as dense as marble. I mean, it's incredibly dense. And I think it's three times stronger than concrete in compression. And there's an infinite amount. I mean, absolutely, the, the data is staggering. If you took all of the calcium carbonate out of the ocean and put it on land, you'd have 400 feet. You'd have a layer 400 feet thick of this stuff. So it's out there. So that's what BioRock is. And we think it's fascinating because we can build artificial reefs in places that have been completely destroyed uh, in, in the ocean. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and we are talking about something that I know is probably new to you, floating cities, and how they can be used in resiliency. Uh, A question that came to mind, and you actually alluded to it somewhat uh, in the last segment. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned something about the carbon footprint for bringing in things, but I'm curious if in a different world, I'm not, I'm not even talking about your prototype, but I'm talking about in a different world where we've established floating cities. Um, do you foresee that this is uh, floating cities in, in the net would have a, a net positive impact on climate change in, in terms of either reduction of, of CO2 or sustainability in some other ways? I'm just curious if you even sort of model that impact out. We are definitely um, using metrics like uh, the ecological footprint, um, you know, that models the global hectares needed per inhabitant. And I believe it's 1.6 global hectares per person on earth um, is what it takes to be sustainable. You know, when we reach that point halfway through the year where where we've used up most of our resources. So we have modeled and um, we're at about 0.5. So 0.5 global hectares per resident on on a floating city. This is what we're aiming for, targeting. Now, it will vary if every resident on there takes a flight every six months or every month, right? We can't account specifically for for that. But to compare that to a city like uh, like Barcelona or or Athens, um, where they're around four to four to five global hectares, which is not sustainable. Again, 1.6 is sustainable. Now, a lot of countries and a lot of developing cities, cities in developing countries have a low uh, global hectares because they're still not consuming as many resources. But if we don't find a way to build cities in a different way on land, on the ocean, we literally are, are going to run into a problem of, um, of supply. Think about concrete. People forget that concrete is made out of sand. And I think our grandchildren are going to look back at us and say, you used sand, which is very necessary for, you know, for chips, for all sorts of things, and you put it into a rock that we cannot extract from. You can't take concrete and get sand back out of concrete. But we're running out of sand. The UN had a meeting in Geneva last year, and there's a real concern that we're consuming sand faster than the Earth's capacity to produce it through rivers and um, just natural processes. So we do need to think about cities at, at that scale. It's, it's literally, it's, it's staggering the, the amount of materials we need. Now, Oceanic City is certainly one of the things that you're probably spending a lot of your time on, but have there been other projects that you've done, your company's done that you can point us to? Uh, Oceanic City uh, was created specifically uh, for the purpose of starting this prototype with all of these partners, whether it's MIT, uh, Bjork Ingalls, and, and other universities we're talking to around the world, um, and UN Habitat. Um, nobody in the world has, has built a fully sustainable, you know, closed loop, uh, floating city. It has been on the drawing board since at least, uh, for, for over 50 years. I mean, Buckminster Fuller 
uh, proposed three floating cities, one for Tokyo, one for Baltimore, which was weeks away from being voted in, and even in one in Toronto. Uh, the Japanese, I think it was in the 50s, between the 50s and 70s, the Japanese proposed, I think, a dozen different floating city models. But again, the driver, the economic driver wasn't there. The thinking was there, the engineering was there. But as long as the city said, hey, we got plenty of space and we don't know about sea level rise, it, it wasn't an issue. So I think it's all a question of timing. And I think we will see floating cities very soon. Where, where can people find out more about your company or your efforts? Do you have any social media or websites you can point us to? Uh, sure. Uh, our website, Oceanics, so O-C-E-A-N-I-X dot org. Oceanics dot org. And on Twitter, it's Oceanics City. Okay. I will definitely be following that. And uh, I think we're going to draw this to a close. But before we do that, it's a time in our podcast where we do our Geek of the Week. Uh, we like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Paula Kane from Punca or Punsa City, Oklahoma. Apologies if I mispronounced that. She has been an emergency manager for the city since 2001. And if you live in Oklahoma, you'll need Paula's guidance when nasty weather comes through. Even though Paula lives and works in the heart of Tornado Alley, her favorite type of weather is a nice, warm, and breezy day. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. This has been one that we've done well over 100 podcasts and about four years of a TV show, but this has been one of the more fascinating episodes, so thank you. Well, thank you, Marshall, and all your team for, for having me on. I appreciate Absolutely. the opportunity. Good luck with your efforts. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Thank you, for, as always, for listening to Weather Geeks. We'll see you next time.